We're here tonight, folks, in, in more ways than one, because 500 years ago, something significant happened in the world of Christianity. I know initially it was just something very small that happened, but it led to something that led to something that led to something really big. But the first thing that happened, all it was, essentially, was that a man stuck a notice up on a public notice board. Never underestimate the power of talking about the truth. You, know, you don't know where it's going to go. I'm told, actually, though, that in the past, some preachers of a more anti-Catholic strain would portray the young Luther bravely and solemnly marching up the streets of Wittenberg with a crowd of his supporters behind them, encouraging him to drive the nails into the door of the church. And with each physical strike of the hammer, he was driving a spiritual nail into the coffin of that apostate church. That's not what happened. It's just the guy sticking a notice up in, up in the door. The very ordinary request for debate over some theology. And later on uh, in, in this series and in this sermon, I will spend a little bit of time recounting the history of, of the Reformation. I think it is important that we know what happened. But initially, it was just just a guy wanting to talk. But before I, 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 I go into everything that I have to say tonight, I need to be upfront that... What we are trying to do with this series is not stoke the fires of anti-Catholicism. Let's just address that straight away. I I, I wasn't going to do this, actually, uh, really. I was just going to say, you know, don't be sectarian. But the more I thought about it, the more I saw that, you know, there's not 500 years of, frankly, uh, not always, but there is a a lot of animosity for no reason. So I need to explain myself better, I said. And as, as well, in fairness, if you, when you start looking at this stuff, it's actually quite hard not to talk about Protestant essentials, which is what we're doing in this series, without ta- talking about how that affects your view of and your treatment of your Roman Catholic family, friends, or neighbours. Because there are significant differences of belief between ourselves and our Catholic neighbours. For example, there's differences in our beliefs about how one gets to heaven, on how one is made right with God, on the acceptable ways to communicate with God, on what happens after we die, on the things that we should be doing here in this life, and many other things. So you know, these are not insignificant, right? And there's a lot of disagreement on theory and a lot of disagreement on practice. And when you get into it, like there's, there is quite a lot. I mean, there's a lot of in common as well, but there is a lot of disagreement. But the thing is, our fight isn't with Roman Catholicism. Our fight is with everyone. And I'll come back to that later. But we're going to talk about a lot of things in this series. About scripture. About sin. About grace, sacraments, maybe, and other things. And tonight we're going to talk about justification. And we're going to talk about all of them because what we discovered or rediscovered during the Reformation was that we had lost sight of these things that are essential, not just for following God, but for being alive. We say the Reformation still matters because what we rediscovered there is applicable to everyone, everywhere, always. 
And now this kind of comes to the crux of the matter. Because in what I just said there, there's an implicit criticism of Roman Catholicism, right? If I say that the teachings of the Reformation are essential for living, then surely it's fair to say that I uh, then believe that Catholics are somehow less alive if they follow the teachings of their faith. Is that what I'm saying? No. I don't believe that. I've met many Catholics who have a loving faith in the Lord. I've read many works by Catholics that were stimulating and uplifting and beneficial to me. I've read a lot of this book, Catechism of the Catholic Church, and there's much in it that's good and useful. I was reared as a Catholic, and much of my thinking and practice of my faith comes from what I was taught there as a young fella. And yet, I do believe that the teachings we are going over in this series are correct and as corresponding counterparts in Roman Catholicism are not. How do I reconcile that? Well, firstly, we believe that you are saved by faith and not by claiming a Protestant identity. And Catholics do have faith. Or if they do have faith then as such they receive the benefits of believing in Christ. Even if they go on to formulate, as they do, a very different understanding of how one is saved. But they're still saved. Everyone is saved if they have faith. Romans 10.10 is quite clear. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Whoever says that, that's applicable to them. And secondly, accepting that many Catholics have faith a saving faith, a faith that may produce in them as much, if not more, God-glorifying good deeds than our own faith does, I still say that their system of doctrine undermines a number of the chief benefits of faith in Christ. Namely, that it adds unnecessary burdens to the Christian life. It explicitly denies that we can be assured that we will be saved. And at times, ironically enough, given what I've just said, he gives a false sense of security to folk who have no faith whatsoever. And that's as polemical as I'm going to get. The humbling thing is that many of my Catholic brothers and sisters overcome these things and have a depth of faith in God that surpasses the faith of many Protestants, including myself. No. <laughs> I'm aware that I could be seen as very patronizing there. Oh, I see, Richie. So you reckon some of us can overcome our limitations, is it? And do better, is it? Well, yes. Such is what I've seen and such is what I believe. Here I stand. Now let me say two things in response to this accusation as well of being patronizing. Firstly, the Catholic Church itself actually teaches what I've just said there, but in reverse. Paragraph 816 and 819 of this here book, The Catholic Catechism, says that it is within the Catholic Church that you find the fullness of faith, and only there. Non-Catholic Christians such as ourselves, or what they call other ecclesial communities, have many elements of sanctification and truth, but not the fullness of faith. And essentially they're saying that we have some good things, but not all of it. And in fairness, I suppose they're probably, probably being more generous than I am. However, not entirely. Because you should know that 
also in their catechism, section 846 if you're interested, you guys who were brought up as Protestants are less culpable than I am who was brought up in the Roman Catholic Church and left. And further, not only am I more guilty than you, because, but because I have studied Catholicism and I reject it, I'm actually guilty of heresy, which is a mortal sin. And so in their understanding, should I not repent of it before I die, I will go to hell. Such is their theology. So you could forgive me for being a little bit more combative. The second thing that might help you is that when I meet any Catholic friends, or when I go home, I don't consider that I'm meeting a pagan in need of converting. They might be. But they could just as well be a brother or sister with whom I have doctrinal disagreements with and from whom I might learn a lot about following Jesus. And I do. Either way, as I said, I do find the Catholic system of belief to add unwarranted and unnecessary duties to people. And if when I'm chatting to them, I find them laboring under these extra duties, I'm not going to hesitate to tell them about my faith. And also, if I think that their Catholicism is just something that they use to rubber stamp the various sections of their life, well, I feel free to talk to them about coming to my church. I want to convince people to come to whatever church I'm in. And I think it would be, if I think it would be good for them to do so. Or if I think it's necessary for, to do, for them to do so. But if they're Catholics, and they believe Jesus is Lord, and they're doing alright in their faith, well, then I'm happy to have the conversation about our differences and see what happens. If they want to have that conversation, well, I'm not going to push it. And also, practically speaking, I found this more so particularly here, it's not a small thing to convert from Catholicism to some form of Protestantism, or indeed vice versa. And like today is Remembrance Day, right? And the reality is that to go to a church that celebrates remembrance is a bridge too far for many Catholics. So it may be that they accept everything I have to say to them, or that you have to say to them, but coming to a Protestant church is just not going to happen. Not going to happen. You've got to live with that. No. That all said, please come talk to me if you think I'm wrong or if I've struck the wrong tone. But I still haven't got on to justification. I still, I, I did feel that I need to say that. I hope you can see now, however, why I say our fight isn't with Roman Catholicism. It's with anyone and everyone. Like, I need to talk to those boys who are saying I'm going to hell. And I've met some of them. But if you meet or are friends with a, a Roman Catholic for whom their Catholic faith isn't doing the job, then tell them, tell them the gospel. But for the most part, these doctrines that we're going to talk about in this series are for those who don't know him, who don't care about him, who are antagonistic to God. And that is true whether they are Catholic, Protestant, or whatever. These things we talk about in this series will justify them, will set them free. doesn't matter what religion they are. In fact, let me say, let me say this. I'm not going to talk about this really, but if we were going to feel, feel the need to, fight, to have a fight with anyone over these doctrines, it would be within our own church. The New Testament has many warnings about wolves in sheep's clothing teaching things that are not the truth. That's a reference to folk who are in 
our church, not the one down the road. Anyway, let's talk about justification. Well, actually, let me talk about the Reformation firstly. So as I said, Luther nails this document to a church door in his hometown of Wittenberg. And they say this is the start of the Reformation. But as always, there's a bigger picture going on, and Stephen tipped the hat at it earlier on. And the two bigger things that you need to know is that the, the Pope was a, a political ruler in Europe at the time, and a lot of lesser princes and kingdoms were seeking ways to gain more power. And so the Reformation became a way that they did this. And I, again, I'm not going to talk about this, um, this aspect of it at all, but you should know that this was happening because later on, when Luther was on trial for his teachings, he would have been burned as a heretic, had, but he had a prince who was favorable to him. And that prince effectively rescued uh, him and overruled the rule of the church. And if he hadn't done that, if, if Luther didn't have some politicians in his back pocket, then I would probably be saying mass right now, and I wouldn't be going home to my wife tonight. The second bigger context, which I find more interesting, is that the Western Church at the time was very corrupt. And that isn't a, a statement of, you know, latent bigotry speaking. All historians agree with this, Catholic or otherwise. The clergy were un, uneducated. The popes were elected with a lot of influence from local powerful families. The moral standards of Rome itself was not great. Popes had mistresses. Most, not most priests, a lot of priests had children. It wasn't a good situation. Luther himself went to Rome and he was shocked by the lack of moral integrity that he saw on display there. On top of all this, you had a situation where the king of France was getting increasingly powerful and he organized things about a hundred years earlier so that the papacy moved to Avignon, Avignon, I can't pronounce it, Avignon in France. And this caused a lot of controversy, right? The next seven popes were there in France. And then there was a period where there was two popes at the same time, one in Rome and one in France. And there was even one year where there was three popes all at the same time. And eventually, you know, they got back to having one pope in Rome. But the reputation of the papacy had been shook. So by the time Luther comes along and he does his thing, you have a population in Europe that is wary of the papacy... A leadership in Europe that would love to shake off some of the strictures that are upon them by the papacy. And a church that in general just has a lot of issues. Along comes Luther. And he himself was a bright, young Augustinian monk. He was very scrupulous in his studies and in his personal life. He would go to confession regularly and spend a long time telling the priest every little thing that he did wrong. He had this tremendous sense of his own failings and of the holiness of God. He says that when he first performed the Mass, he was terrified. Because as you know, the Catholic Church teaches that the bread turns into the body of Christ. So Luther thought, well, I'm holding God in my hands. And he was so scared that he nearly dropped the bread. Anyway, Luther's superiors saw that he had a good mind. And they taught him might help him with his constant doubts and fears if they sent him to study the Bible and teach it. And so they did, and he talked to this like a duck to water. By now you should be able to see the picture uh, of what happened getting clearer. Luther was a scrupulous man. 
He begins to study the Bible. And as he studied it, his sense of the awesomeness of God grew and his sense of fear uh, grew as well. Because one of the things that happens as you study God's word is that you find it is full of moral principles. And one thing, one sentence, sorry, that particularly galled him was this phrase that Stephen read out earlier from Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It says, In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Now I need to explain this word righteousness because it's not one that we use too often in conversation. Actually, we probably do use it a lot, but I don't know if we stop to think about it. Righteousness, the best definition I've heard about it is, righteousness is a validating performance record which opens doors. So, for example, if you want a job, you make a CV, right? And a CV is a record of all that you've done. It should have all your accomplishments and experiences. So if you want a job, you take it to the employer or whoever that you have to apply to, and it's your validating performance record, and you say, here, look at what I've done. I'm worthy of this position. Accept me. And if your performance record is good enough, if you are good enough, the door opens. Or let's say that you want to go to college. What do you do? In that case, it's not your job's record, but your academic record. So you bring out your grades. These now function as a validating performance record. You say, hey, Queens, look at this. I got two A stars and an A. I'm worthy of getting into this course. Please accept me. And if you're good enough, you're accepted. And that's actually the way it is in a lot of life. Everybody has these validating performance records by which they get into jobs or college. And that's the reason every religion and every culture, everywhere in the world, believes it's the same with God. If there is a God, and you want to have a spiritual connection, it's the same. It's not a work record or an academic record, it's a moral record. That's how people function in religion. And Luther felt caught by this. And this righteousness of God really played with Luther's mind. Because he was aware of the fact that God was a holy God. God's performance record was perfection. And Luther knew more than most that he was not perfect. So that being the case, then why, he said to himself, in the gospel, the so-called good news, would there be another reference to the righteousness of God? How was that good news? And yet that's what it said. Romans chapter 1 verse 17. So Luther tells us that eventually he paid attention to the context of the verse. That was a good thing. And the meaning of it suddenly clicked. The righteousness mentioned here by Paul is not another standard for us to live up to. It's the righteousness that we gain by faith. It's a gift, not a threat. And immediately... He started running through all the other scriptures in his mind. And he saw that many of the other places where he had taught a standard was being talked about was actually a gift from God. All these places he thought were commands to holy living were actually promises of God to give us what we need to be holy in his sight. This righteousness comes to us as a gift because of Jesus' life and death. Jesus lived a perfect life. He is the only righteous person ever. The only one that ever got a validating performance record that truly was perfect. And as Luther found out, if we have faith in him, he gives it to us. 
And in response to this discovery, Luther said, writing about it years later, he said, All at once I felt as if I had been born again and entered into paradise itself as if through open gates. They're good words. And what Luther was after rediscovering is that the gospel shows us how we can satisfy the demands of the law of God not by our own efforts or even by a combination of our own efforts plus attendance at religious ceremonies and or the use of the sacraments but solely in fi- by faith in Christ alone. And Luther found there was nothing he could do to earn his salvation. It was all a gift from God and it melted his heart. Um, and I'm not one, I don't think I'm one to be uh, swayed by uh, seeing religious experiences as proof of the experience that you're going through. But I can't help but feel like those words are the words of someone who has had a tremendously profound experience. Very quickly then, Luther went on to make two other closely connected discoveries. One of them he was already connect, acquainted with. The first, he began to really see that his sinfulness was much deeper than he thought. He wasn't merely a sick or weak person. He was living in a state of constant rebellion against God. And I think newcomers, certainly I did in you, to all forms of Christianity usually struggle with this doctrine the most. They see their own efforts have been good. They know that they love and they truly love others. They have seen people do good things, be brave, be kind, etc., And yet Luther understood that even when we are doing good, there is something warring on our hearts, pulling us away from God. And at times this war is obvious, but the rest of the time it's always there, lurking in the background. And because of this sinful state we are in, we can't please God. We can't be righteous no matter what we do. We cannot validate ourselves with our performance. We cannot open the doors of heaven. And the second thing then he went on to discover, and this is where he really broke with the church at the time, was that he discovered that Paul teaches that we are justified by being reckoned righteous. In other words, it's our status before God that changes. The Catholic Church taught, and still teaches to this day, that justification actually changes us, and it changes us to people who are then able to cooperate with God, and so be able to earn our salvation or better put, keep our salvation until such a time as we go before God and are judged. But Luther, however, saw that justification does change us, but that change and the degree to which we thereafter lead good lives has no bearing on our salvation. The act of being justified is what saves us because God gives us Jesus' righteousness and you don't need anything else. Immediately, And maybe some of you have just had this thought jump into your mind when I said that. But immediately, when Luther started teaching this, his detractors said something that I still hear today. I I feel it myself. Um, When I explain to people that I am assured of going to heaven now, people say, what's to stop you doing nothing now that you're saved? Now that you're saved, can you just go on and do whatever you want? And one guy said, to, said that all Luther was interested in was money and women. 
To them, the gospel means the right to do as they please. Not at all. The hidden assumption there is that our only incentive to lead a good life is fear of punishment. Well, that's not love. And loving God is 50% of the law. No, what Luther found, and what Christians throughout the centuries have found, is that when you know you are saved, when you know that the validation performance record is yours, you're free to love and to do good without looking over your shoulder all the time, worrying about what God will think of you, worrying about what you will think, worrying about what others think of you. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, Paul says the following words. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't matter. It's the Lord who judges me. Now that there is an example of a man who knows the effect of his justification before God. Do you know... How powerful that is. Do you know what happens when you are not burdened by the judgment of others, of yourself, and of God? Do you know what happens? Freedom. Justification is the doctrine of freedom. And that's one reason why the Reformation still matters. Everyone is chasing freedom today. But instead, they're becoming less and less free and more and more enslaved and judged by themselves, by others, and most certainly by God. Christoph, if you were here this morning, was talking about how society is becoming less and less a church-going society, and that's true. But one thing hasn't changed. In fact, I, I would make a case it's got worse. And that is that there are standards now that you must keep and new ones that keep popping up everywhere. And in fact, there's a lot of law but very little grace. And you know what's ironic is that sometimes... Or sorry. Yes, what's ironic is that sometimes there are scholars who will disagree with Luther and his theology and they'll say Luther was just projecting his own internal insecurities onto the Bible and they will point out that in the Middle Ages people had a very seesaw view of God they were caught in this endless cycle of guilt and fear and pride and condemnation but that's exactly what we see today society keeps coming up with new laws with which they say this is how we live now and woe betide anyone who contravenes those laws. They tell our young people, you can be anything. And you have to be yourself. Be yourself. And I think a lot of them actually are paralyzed. Fearful of either not being themselves or transgressing some new boundary. They actually end up doing nothing. Or seeking to be perfect. They're paralyzed or driven. I feel like it's a very hard life to be young these days. Faith in Jesus that brings a righteousness from God that justifies us before him and frees us to love is the only answer to all the stuff in the world today. Is that true? It is true.
We call that justification. And it's one of the reasons why the Reformation still matters. And that's it. We're going to sing. Actually, no. Let me pray. Father. Hello. Thank you for... Thank you for what you've done for us. I ask for myself and my brothers and sisters that we could take a hold of this message of your righteousness justifying us in your sight. That we could let go of all of our own attempts to justify ourselves. That we would see that we don't need to be judged by you anymore, by ourselves ever, and certainly not by others. Because we have your judgment and that's all that matters. Help us to live in this reality. Help us to be free. Keep bringing us back to this truth. I pray that for those of us who have Roman Catholic friends, sisters, neighbours, partners, that we could be humble with them, learn from them, and speak when you want us to speak. Amen. We've got to go.